Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Um, welcome to the National Library of Australia. My name is Nathan Woolley. I'm the curator of the exhibition Celestial Empire. As we begin this evening's proceedings, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land. I thank their elders, past and present, for caring for this land that we're now privileged to call home. Tonight, we continue with the series of lectures we are presenting in partnership with the Australian Centre on China Law at the ANU as part of the public programming for Celestial Empire. Celestial Empire and its public programs have been made possible through the support of a large range of different partners. The results are very much a collaboration between government, commercial partners and individual donors. First, we must thank the National Library of China for sharing many of their treasures with us. I'd also like to thank our commercial partners. These are Shell in Australia, the Seven Network, Wonder One, Optus Singtel, Huawei, Cathay Pacific and TFE Hotels. Our event partners are, as mentioned, the ANU's Australian Centre on China and the World and Asia Society Australia. Our government partners include the federal government through the National Collecting Institutions Touring Outreach Program and the Australia China Council and the ACT government through Visit Canberra. Um, in addition to thanking these supporters, I'd also like to thank each of you for coming along this evening um, to hear Dr. David Brophy speak to us about the Manchus. Now, in preparing my comments to introduce um, David this evening, I thought there were two ways that I could possibly do this. So the first way I could introduce David goes something like this. David is currently a lecturer in history at the University of Sydney. Originally from Adelaide, he got his doctorate in Inner Asian and Altaic Studies from Harvard University in 2011. Between being at Harvard and being at the University of Sydney, David was also briefly my colleague at the Australian Centre in China and the World as a postdoctoral fellow. His research to date has focused on the social and political history of China's Northwest and its connections with the Islamic world and the Soviet Russian sphere. His new book, Uyghur Nation, Reform and Revolution on the Russia-China Frontier, has recently appeared with Harvard University Press. In his current research, David has turned his attention to the expansion of the Qing dynasty in the 18th century and the relatively unused archives of Manchu language materials. So that's the first way I thought I might introduce David, but I thought I won't do that because that's long and there's a lot of detail so, and doesn't really do justice to his achievements. So the second way I thought I'd introduce David would be better because it would be easier and more tangible. So the second way for me to introduce um, Dr. David Brophy is just to read out a list of the languages that David uses in his research. And I warn you, it's longer than the list of our supporters. So <laughs> these languages are English, German, Chinese, Russian, Japanese, Uyghur, Uzbek, Chagatai, Persian, Manchu, Mongolian, and Turkish. Rumour also had it that David has um, studied Sogdian at some point, but I haven't had that confirmed. Um, so I'd like to say, if you have any queries about any of these languages, or even about the content of his talk, please do hold those questions to the end when um, David has kindly agreed to answer some of our questions. Um, but tonight, David will predominantly be answering one question that I'm sure many of you have had on your minds since January, when the exhibition opened, and that is, who were the Manchus? Please join me in welcoming Dr. David Brophy. All right. Uh, thanks, Nathan, for that uh introduction and thank you to the, the National Library for the invitation to, to speak tonight and 
also to the Centre on China in the World at, at ANU for their support uh, of this series, a place where I spent a couple of very happy years immediately post-graduation. Um, and obviously thank you all for coming out uh, as well and supporting this, this fantastic uh, exhibition. So Who Were the Manchus is the simple title of, of my talk tonight. One response uh, is to say that the Manchus were the rulers of China's last dynasty, the Qing. Uh, and that's, that explains why I'm talking about them in the context of this, uh, this ex exhibition. Uh, of course, only a small minority of the Manchu population ever had much say in the ruling uh, of China. Uh, the Manchus were from Manchuria, uh, another fairly obvious response. Uh, although this territory was, only became known as Manchuria because uh, of the Manchus. Uh, and that in and of itself was a fairly recent uh, invention. Up until the 1630s or thereabouts, if people inhabiting this territory called themselves anything, uh, it was uh, the name Jurchen, which I'll come back to. Uh, this was a society that practiced uh, limited agriculture and animal husbandry, but derived a lot of its wealth from, uh, from fishing, from pearling uh, in the rivers, from the ginseng trade, uh, and also the fur trade, fur, pearls, and ginseng being the real source of wealth in, um, in this region. It was a society organized around powerful clans. Uh, so the family who became the ruling dynasty of the Qing uh, came from this, this Jianzhou region, uh, which, because of its proximity to the Ming, was in a strong position to uh, monopolize trade uh, with the Ming and, and therefore gain wealth and, and influence from that. Um, again, because of this, its frontier location, there are also quite a lot of Chinese living in this territory, uh, runaways from Ming territory, people we might call uh, frontiersmen, or frontierswomen uh, as well. Um, so, in, in fact, this was already quite a mixed society by the, uh, by the 17th century, and that only increased as Manchu's strength grew uh, and they attracted allies from further west, from among the Mongols. We see from these uh, statistics uh, that uh, by the time of the Manchu conquest, the Manchu armies uh, included many Chinese uh, and Mongols uh, along with, with Manchus. And these are organized into military units known as, as banners. This gives us some rough, rough estimate of the, the population uh, or the size of the, the, the conquering army. Uh, at the start of the, um, the start of the Qing, we see that alongside the Manchus, large numbers of Mongols uh, and Chinese uh, as well. If we look at the second row here, we see that up until the 18th century, there was still actually quite a large population uh, of Chinese uh, in these banners, in this banner system. So, in, in some ways, the key social distinction, at least for the early part of the Qing, but continuing through to the end was not so much between Manchu identity and, and everyone else, but, but between banner status and, and civilian status. Uh, and, and in fact, a lot of people expressed their Manchu identity uh, at the fall of the Qing uh, by saying that they were simply people of the banner um, or people who belonged to the banners. Uh, that, was, that was code for, for Manchu. Um, now, that size of, of Chinese and population was actually reduced in the course of the 18th century as this system became a burden on the state and they tried to reduce uh, the number of people in these banners. As a result of that, the, the concept of banner identity in Manchu 
uh, identity became more, more closely intertwined. Um, now, I mentioned some of you were at Jeremy Barmay's talk at the start of this expedition. How, how, how many people were, were at that talk? A, a good number. So I won't say too much about the imperial capital uh, of, of Beijing. Um, you can see here that you have the imperial palace surrounded by the, the imperial city where the, the residents of the, the Qing emperors and the administration, then surrounded by this much larger territory uh, which was... Uh, in daytime at least, a preserve of the, the Manchu, um, the Manchu bannermen, organised according to the, the structure uh, of the banners. So you can see that the banners, not only were these administrative units, they uh, military units, but they doubled uh, as administrative units once this, this Manchu population had arrived in China uh, and, and was occupying uh, the country. Uh, outside of the capital, Garrisons, banner garrisons were dotted, dotted around the country, um, but with a definite focus on the north, as you can see from, from this map. Very few such garrisons in the, in the southern part of China, uh, reflecting the strategic priorities uh, of the Qing. Preserving uh, the frontier with the north, um, uh, fending off any, any threats from uh, first Mongol, uh, enemies and then, then from Russia. Also concentration in Manchuria, which throughout the Qing, right up, up until the end of the Qing, was maintained as a, as a Manchu preserve, a, a place that they, you know, if, if, if going got rough in China itself, they could, uh, they could withdraw to, to Manchuria at least. So Chinese migration into Manchuria was actually banned for most of the, uh, for most of the Qing dynasty. So that was an important territory um, throughout the Qing. These garrisons uh, sometimes built uh, new cities outside the, uh, the existing uh, Chinese cities, but sometimes they just occupied part of the city, uh, as was the case here in this um, uh, Jingzhou, which is in, in central China, uh, in Hubei. The, the Manchu garrison in Xi'an uh, as well was, was similarly located uh, inside, the, inside the city walls. So to go back to this map for a second, the, the chieftains of this Jianzhou region um, initially saw themselves as heirs to the, the Jin dynasty, which was a dynasty founded in the 12th century uh, in North China by, uh, by the Jurchen people, uh, people that the, the Manchus regarded themselves as, as ethnically uh, related to. So the Manchus actually called themselves at first the later Jin dynasty, tapping into to Jin uh, legitimacy first. Not, not the Qing, that came later, uh, once the, the project expanded um, beyond the scope of a, of a regional uh, hegemony. The, um, uh, the official history of the Jin was one of the very first texts to be translated out of Chinese into, into Manchu, uh, reflecting the significance that the Jin had for the, um, for the early Manchus. Um, unfortunately, though, the term Jurchen, by which people in this, <coughs> this area identified, it had undergone something of a semantic shift in the centuries since the, the Jin dynasty. Um, by the late Ming, it was basically a term with, with connotations of subservience, uh, so, so a term meaning slave, um, essentially. Uh, and that wouldn't do 
uh, as a term to unite this, this new conquering army. So in the 1630s, the, the leader uh, by the name of Hung Taiji, he, he declared that henceforth his people would be known as uh, the Manchus. It was, it was an act of imperial fiat to, to create the Manchus. Curiously, we don't actually know what this word means. Um, there's speculation that it might be connected to a name of a river in Manchuria. Uh, some people have suggested that it may have something to do with uh, the Bodhisattva Manjushri. Uh, we know by this time there were contacts between Tibetan Buddhists and the, um, the Manchus. Uh, you know, the, the Manchus ultimately presented themselves as, as patrons of the Tibetan Buddhist, uh, Buddhist clergy. We have some texts in the exhibition uh, reflecting that. Uh, scholars debate at this point whether or not there was really a sense of Manchu identity, Manchu ethnicity uh, at this point, or whether or not it was really just a political term um, to, 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 um, to facilitate this, this political project of, of conquering China that may have, by the end of the Qing, evolved into something like a, an ethnic category. The, the seeming ethnic divisions of that, that banner system that I showed you can be slightly misleading because we know that there were actually Chinese who had migrated into this territory who ended up being classified as Manchus uh, as well. So the boundaries were actually quite, quite fluid. Now, in consolidating a new sense of Manchu identity, the, the Manchu language was, was key. Manchu was not a, a written language. Um, we can trace the link back from Manchu to, to Jurchen of the Jin Dynasty period, which, which had been uh, a written language. Um, now, Manchu belongs to a wider linguistic family, including languages that probably very few people have heard of, Nanai, uh, Awenki, languages that weren't, weren't written down until the 20th century. Uh, these are grouped into the Tungusic family uh, of, of languages, which, uh, according to a certain theory, is uh, itself genetically related in the same way that English is related to Greek and Latin and further afield to you know, Slavic, Armenian, um, to the, the Mongolian languages and to the Turkic languages. So Manchu would be a genetic relative of you know, Turkish, um, Mongolian. There are some who would like to add further branches to this linguistic family, uh, including possibly Korean uh, and Japanese. This um, then forms the core of the, what's known as the Altaic hypothesis. Um, the idea that at some point there was this proto-Altaic language that then um, evolved into these various, various forms. Um, this was once a very popular theory for people who worked on this part of the world. Um, I think it's fair to say that it has fewer defenders now than it, than it did uh, 50, 50 years ago. The jury is out, I think, on the Altaic hypothesis. We, we can say that. Um, but, of course, languages can be closely intertwined uh, without necessarily having a genetic connection. Uh, and the relationship here between Manchu and, and neighbouring Mongolian is particularly uh, important. So when the Manchus decided that they wanted to write their language, they had a few choices uh, available to them. Uh, there was Jurchen uh, of the Jin Dynasty, which was ultimately an adaptation of, of Chinese characters. There on the left. 
they would have been familiar to some extent with the Korean writing system, which was invented in the 15th century, Hangul. Um, and then there was Mongolian um, down in the, the corner there. The fact that they chose Mongolian tells us something uh, about the extent of Mongolian influence uh, in Manchuria uh, at this time. In fact, we know that during the Ming, that, that Zhenzhou community um, out of which the Manchus emerged actually used Mongolian as part of their, you know, their, their skeleton bureaucracy that they had. So Mongolian was playing the role of some kind of lingua franca across North Asia uh, in this period. The first rulers of the Manchus styled themselves not so much as Chinese emperors, but as Mongolian khans, tapping into that, that steppe tradition uh, of rulership. And despite the fact that they weren't Mongols, trying to some extent to claim the legacy of, of Genghis Khan to, to the extent that they could. The, the Manchus themselves were not horse-riding nomads. They weren't the classic nomadic barbarians sweeping in from the, the steppe. But nevertheless, steppe culture, steppe taste was a feature of court life uh, in the Qing. So that the Manchu hairstyle, the, the queue, shaved front, ponytail at the back, that was a sort of a typical uh, northern uh, hairstyle. Uh, they shared the, the classic nomadic distaste for Chinese customs, such as foot binding like that, which they, they, they never adopted. Um, we have in the exhibition this, this map of the royal hunting grounds at, um, at Mulan, which is one way in which the Qing emperors laid claim to this, this tradition of steppe statecraft. Uh, so we have sort of classic images of the emperor uh, on the hunt, which, which we could obviously directly compare to, to a long tradition of depictions of the emperor slaying the wild beast, going back to Babylon, if, if, not, uh, if not even earlier. Now, creating a Manchu script was, in and of itself, another way of tapping into this, uh, into this narrative, because Genghis Khan himself had been responsible for commissioning the creation of, of the Mongolian script. Um, so within this political tradition, creating a new script was, in effect, the sign of a launch of a new political project. Um, so we see this with the Manchus, um, created at the end of the 16th century, reformed through the uh, early 17th century. Um, we see this also with their chief rivals for power um, in Mongolia and Tibet, the, um, the Oirat Mongols, known as the Jungars. I don't know if anyone's heard of the, the Jungar Mongols. These were the, these were the number one enemy for the first century of, of Qing, Qing rule. And they did something very similar in the 1640s, creating a new script for their, you know, their particular dialect uh, of Western Mongolian. Uh, just to continue this theme of scripts for a second. Um, so I said Genghis Khan derived his script from... Um, well, he derived it from... Um, Turkic-speaking Uyghurs in his service, so we can see, see a connection there. Uh, they themselves took it from the Sogdians, uh, speakers of an Iranian language, from what is now Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, but who'd spread out along the Silk, Silk Road. Uh, they got it from um, Syriac, now we're moving into Semitic languages, um, and that in itself was a, an, a, an adaptation of particular kind of Aramaic script, back to Phoenician. And of course, that's where our Greek and Latin alphabets ultimately descend from 
uh, as well. So we can actually plot a family tree of the world's scripts with Manchu on one branch and our, our Latin alphabet uh, on, on another branch, all, all descending from the, the same place. All right, so variants of the Manchu language do have a history as an oral language uh, in Manchuria, but it was very much a creation of the Qing conquest, uh, as we can see from this. And uh, indeed, it was referred to in Chinese often simply as the Qing language, Qingwen. Uh, that was the term. The Manchus never imposed their language on the Chinese population, um, but at least through to the 19th century, it was required for officials and members of the banners in particular to, to write to the throne uh, in Manchu. And there were some civilians who'd risen through the, uh, the examination system, got to the top of the examination system, who were then assigned to academies where they would, uh, they would study Manchu uh, for a few years. So there were Chinese who became quite accomplished in, in Manchu uh, during the Qing. Uh, for a while, it was assumed that a lot of this Manchu correspondence was ultimately translated into Chinese. Uh, uh, but we now know that that's, that's very much not the case. Um, there are indeed some hints that Manchu was seen by the Qing as, a, in some ways, a, a secret language that they could use to uh, keep information out of the hands of the, the routine uh, institutions of administration that they inherited from the, from the Ming. Um, particularly in sensitive frontier regions, there was a strong emphasis on maintaining Manchu as the language uh, of communication. And that, by the way, partly explains why I'm here today. Uh, as Nathan said, I mostly work on uh, Xinjiang in the northwest, uh, so quite a long way from, from Manchuria, but this was one region where uh, the court insisted that officials write their reports uh, in Manchu. And so most of the documentation uh, from that area in the Qing is, is in Manchu. But even before the conquest, because of this, this mixed um, community that I've described on the borders of uh, the Ming and Manchuria, this was a multilingual uh, society and produced a lot of materials um, in multiple languages, Chinese, Manchu and Mongolian. We have downstairs a very, very nice bilingual Chinese Manchu decree these types of things are typical uh, for the Qing. And this naturally entailed a lot of dictionaries, which range from quite simple uh, Manchu Chinese lexicons, uh, such as this one, which is in the exhibition, through to this, this massive five-language dictionary uh, of the late 18th century, um, which was really more an expression, more an ideological expression of universal rulership um, than, than any kind of lexicographic aid. Uh, as you can see, you know, the words are um, just very simple one-word entries, not a lot of explanation, really. Of the, um, it's very difficult to use as a dictionary, uh, this thing. Um, by this time, so this is late 18th century, the, the Qing had expanded to its greatest extent, so completed its conquest of Tibet, uh, Xinjiang, and it wasn't sufficient to rule anymore as, simply as an occupying force. Distinct legitimation narratives had to be constructed for the, the very complex mix of, of religious and ethnic constituencies, all centred, of course, on the emperor, who was supposed to transcend any ethnic or religious particularities. 
Uh, and that's very distinctive of the, the Qianlong reign in, in particular, which lasted from 1730s to the, the 1790s. The Qianlong emperor claimed to, to embody this universality himself by having mastered these, these five languages. Uh, that, was, that was his claim, at least. He was certainly proficient in Manchu and Chinese. Uh, and I've seen, I've seen small notes that he's written in, in Mongolian, so he could, he could handle uh, Mongolian. But I'm a little bit sceptical of uh, Tibetan and, and, and Uyghur. Where's, where's Natalie? Is she here? Tibetan. Could he speak Tibetan, do you think? A little, a little. Okay. Um, now, somewhat paradoxically, as a result of this, this shift, Manchu culture and identity came to be... Um, it, it, it had to be codified and slotted into this, this, um, this, this new system, um, this, this five-way vision of the, uh, of the Qing uh, Empire. Now, along with this, the relatively laissez-faire approach to culture in the, in the early Qing was also starting to cause a concern uh, at the court that the Manchus were assimilating to, uh, to Chinese civilization, and this would be harmful for the vitality, the, the elan uh, of the, the ruling elite. So it was also the Qianlong Emperor who started to uh, create a more official version uh, of Manchu identity, and he's really responsible for a lot of the ideas that we have about what it meant to be a Manchu. Uh, he started to insist that Manchus display literacy in Manchu. He often corrected his officials or upbraided them on their poor, uh, poor use of Manchu. Uh, this was part of a process of, of creating this notion of a Manchu way, uh, which, uh, of course, the term way is probably familiar to you. Confucianism and Taoism, uh, each in their own way, promote the following of simply the way, uh, unmarked. Uh, here was the idea that for, for the Manchus there was a distinctive way uh, for the Manchus, Manchus to follow. One sign of acculturation, so um, martial skills were emphasised very much as, as part of the, the Manchu way, particularly archery um, and ideally horseback archery. Uh, that, was the, uh, that was the real, real sign of a of a, of a true Manchu. Uh, another worrying sign of acculturation, but, but also as well a, a consequence of uh, a deliberate policy of the court. By the 18th century, the traditional clan structure of, of Manchu society was uh, in the process of, of breaking down. Um, Manchus were starting to take Chinese family names. So in response, uh, a genealogical project was launched to, to collect these genealogies and, and publish them publicly um, to, 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 uh, to, to, to consolidate a, a notion of a Manchu community that people felt was actually fragmenting. Uh, an official history of the Eight Banners was also written uh, at this time too. Now, another element, oh, this is a, a picture of the, um, the genealogy uh, of the Manchu clans. Uh, one other element of Manchu culture that was fixed uh, in written form at this time was the, the shamanistic tradition. Um, we have in the exhibition uh, a text that, that belongs to this, this tradition. These texts were not just descriptive. They didn't just describe 
the, uh, the rituals, um, they were, were prescriptive, giving um, descriptions of the dress, uh, the rituals, uh, and also the words that should be chanted in order for these, these rituals to be uh, carried out properly. Quite fortuitously, this particular text uh, contains the one word from Manchu that uh, has actually entered the English language. I, I've half given it away already, but does anyone, anyone know what that word is? Shaman, yeah. Yes. Shaman is actually a Manchu word. Um, I, I believe I'm correct in saying it's the only Manchu word in, in English, but happy to be corrected uh, on that. Uh, so the idea of the shaman and, and shamanism as a, as a, you know, a full-blown religion came to Europe in the, in the 18th century via, uh, via Russia. There was a, a Dutch explorer, actually, who um, produced what is regarded as the first you know, visual depiction of a, of a shaman. He hadn't actually been to Manchuria. He was working in Russia at the time, conducting research, but had access to materials that were coming in from uh, you know, Russia's penetration of, of the Far East. Uh, so it was um, you know, people, um, Russian explorers, Cossacks, entering these territories that, that discovered this, this tradition, found out it was called shaman, and then it eventually made its way back to, back to Europe. The preservation of these shamanic rituals was important to the Qing as part of the, the Manchu way. Although Qianlong had another objective in mind as well in, in producing these texts, he was keen to, to render these rituals more respectable uh, in Chinese terms. Uh, similar in form, that is to say, to the, the more delicate, uh, slow-moving Confucian rituals that were also, uh, also performed uh, at court too. So, so scholars think that um, already by this time, we've moved quite a long way from some kind of um, you know, original, authentic uh, Manchurian tradition of, of shamanic rituals. Um, although we still see, you know, we still see elements. Uh, we see, see the drums there uh, on the right, uh, obviously. Um, something that we still associate with, with shamanism. By the end uh, of the Qing dynasty, the, um, the banner system had lost its uh, effectiveness as a, as a fighting force uh, and indeed had come to be seen as a drain on the, the empire's resources. So there had been a series of measures through the 19th century to actually encourage Manchus to, to leave the banners and take up a productive uh, occupation. Banner status entitled you to a stipend from the state. Um, it was what in Chinese terms we would call an iron rice bowl. Um, and that's great if you're in the process of, of conquering China, useful people to have around, but once you consolidate uh, and, um, you know, the, uh, the, this becomes a uh, you know, significant uh, output for the, for the state. The, the result of that was that although the Manchus continued to be perceived as a privileged elite, uh, in actual fact, most ordinary Manchus by the end of the 19th century were really quite poor. And so a lot of descriptions of, of what we call old Beijing, 
uh, at the turn of the century or the, the early 20th century contain these, these sort of vignettes of uh, Manchu bannermen fallen on very hard times. Um, you know, there's the famous Chinese novelist Lao Shi, um, who, whose work um, in, in includes a number of descriptions uh, of Manchu society uh, at this point in time. Of course, the Manchus were still uh, opposed to uh, reforms that would strip away these privileges within the banner system. So, so to a certain extent, they, they were still you know, identified as a conservative force uh, in, in, Qing, uh, in Qing politics, but they certainly weren't the, uh, the comfortably well-off ruling elite that they were sometimes depicted as. Anti-Manchu sentiment was um, something that waxed and waned through the Qing. Uh, we have from the, the period of the Qing conquest some very, uh, very graphic texts describing the horrors that the Manchus inflicted uh, on the Chinese population. But then, then the sort of explicit anti-Manchu sentiment seems to abate for, for a period. Uh, maybe that's just because the Manchus were good at censorship and people were too scared to, to write anything. Um, against the Manchus, but it, it, it is curious that it's not really until the mid-19th century that it, it comes back into, into Chinese intellectual life. Uh, the Taiping rebels played a very important role uh, in this process. It was the Taipings who really took the Manchus and the banner system and, and popularised the idea of Manchu identity, not as a question of banner status versus civilian, but as, a, as an ethnic Identity that the Manchus were a foreign race, a race of foreign devils uh, who were plaguing, plaguing China. One historian has even gone so far as to suggest that if not for this typing propaganda, we could wonder whether or not there would really be a notion of, of Manchu ethnicity by the, by the end of the, the 19th century. Now, the, the late Qing reform process, particularly beginning in, in 1898, with the so-called 100 Days of Reform, um, which was largely rolled back very quickly. Uh, but then uh, after that, in the following decade, uh, the so-called new policies, uh, which, which were effective to some extent, these reforms were sensitive to this critique of uh, institutionalised Manchu, Manchu difference, and they gradually broke down uh, elements of the, the inheritance of, of the conquest, the, the banner system, uh, intermarriage between Chinese and Manchus was permitted for the first time. Uh, it had been prohibited throughout the empire up until, up until very late. Uh, the system of diarchy. Diarchy refers to a system whereby in key administrative positions, Chinese and Manchus were appointed uh, alongside each other. So there were two heads of a department. If you had a Chinese, you had, had to have a Manchu uh, alongside them. Um, and Chinese understandably resented this uh, as an indication that, you know, having served the Qing for 200 years, they still don't trust us. You still have to have a Manchu sitting next to us. Um, you, won't, you won't let us get on with our job. That was finally abolished in the very, very last years of the, the Qing dynasty. Uh, yet at the same time, there were significant countervailing tendencies uh, as well. There was a conservative centralisation taking place uh, at, at court, consolidating uh, power in, in the hands of the dowager and the, the Manchu princes who surrounded, who surrounded her. One of the demands of reformers at the end of the Qing was that the Qing, Qing needed to have, and 
a demand of, of foreign governments as well, that, that Qing needed to have a more, more of a modern government system. It needed to have a cabinet. Uh, it needed to have ministers. Um, eventually, they, you know, the Qing court um, conceded and, and created something approaching a, a cabinet, but it was stacked with, with Manchus. It became known as the prince's cabinet. Uh, and this was something that infuriated uh, reformers, uh, Chinese reformers such as Sun Yat-sen, who had to a large extent inherited that, that Taiping line uh, that the Manchus were, were foreign aggressors. Um, China could not, uh, could not modernise, could not enter the modern world without first overthrowing uh, the Manchu uh, occupiers. So as a result, much of the, the rebellious energy of the, the 1911-1912 revolution that, that overthrew the Qing dynasty was directed uh, against the Manchus themselves. Uh, across the country, there were, there were pogroms uh, against local banner communities. Uh, violence in places like Xi'an was, was particularly bad. Uh, this is something that's still not really openly discussed uh, in China today, the, the anti-Manchu violence uh, of this period. Um, but it was, was significant. Um, now, a certain degree of acculturation was a reality by this time, although it did vary in degree across the, the empire, but the fact that the Manchus were being blamed for China's dire state uh, in the early 20th century meant that a strong stigma attached to Manchu identity uh, in the years that, that followed. Um, so people lay low. Uh, a lot of people obscured their family history as we enter the, the Republican period. Um, Manchu, having Manchu um, origins was, for some people, a kind of guilty secret that they, they harboured, uh, maybe passed on to their children, um, you know, in their twilight years. This was, of course, further complicated in the 1930s when Japan occupied Manchuria and installed the last Qing emperor, Puyi, as the, the president of this, um, uh, of this republic of, of Manchu Corps. Now, the fact is, Manchu Corps was not in any way a state that, that privileged the Manchu population, as you, know, you might think from the, the, the title of this, um, this state. But nonetheless, the Japanese did use the idea of a, of a distinctive Manchu culture and history as part of the justification uh, for the creation uh, of Manchu Corps. So we can see then that there's a sort of a double stigmatisation um, taking place uh, for people, for Manchus, you know, who might be left in, uh, in Chinese territory. The upshot was that, officially at least, a sense of Manchu identity all but vanished by the 1940s. In fact, when ethnographers went out to the northeast to conduct population surveys at the end of the Second World War, they hardly registered any Manchus. They couldn't find anyone, you know, who identified as, as, as Manchu. Um, this is um, one consequence of that was what the, when the Communist Party came to power and started implementing their system of ethnic autonomy. Um, this is what gives us the Tibetan Autonomous Region, the, the Uyghur Autonomous Region in, in Xinjiang. The Manchus got nothing. There was no one putting up their hand claiming, you know, we Manchus, we need an autonomous territory. Uh, it was actually some time uh, later 
that a, um, you know, a string of small autonomous counties were, were created uh, for the Manchus. But for, you know, for most um, of the, uh, the early PRC period, the Manchu question just didn't, didn't exist. It wasn't, um, wasn't on people's minds at, at all. Now again, to some extent, this does reflect uh, acculturation. Um, there has been, throughout the 20th century, a, a trend towards language loss uh, among Manchu speakers. Uh, every now and then, it usually seems to be the New York Times, uh, for some reason. They'll carry an article um, talking about the decline of the Manchus and the disappearance, and usually featuring the last Manchu speaker of some village in, in Manchuria. You, you might have seen some of these, these pieces usually presenting quite a, um, a pitiful scene. <clears throat> there is an exception to this, this general picture, though. Uh, it comes from a place quite a long way away from Manchuria. Uh, in fact, on the border with what is now Kazakhstan. Now, if I went back to that map of, of garrisons, we'd find there uh, a garrison in the Ili Valley, which is now part of uh, Xinjiang, these were speakers of Manchu who were uh, mobilised to go and defend the frontier with, with Russia uh, in the 18th century, taken from actually quite a remote part of Manchuria uh, all the way out to uh, the western frontier, and actually have been ended up being classified not as Manchus but as, as a Shibo um, ethnic minority. Um, that's a complicated question, but take it from me, what they speak is, is Manchu. Um, and they, they, so they belong to this community uh, of Manchu Bannermen. Um, these people found themselves living in a territory where they weren't surrounded by Chinese, very few Chinese in Xinjiang uh, at all for most of the Qing, um, but instead Kazakhs, Mongols, uh, Uyghurs, uh, whose, whose languages they picked up, but uh, they managed to preserve their own uh, very well uh, as well. So if you want to see Manchu as a living language, uh, what that might look like, it's actually, it's actually here that you need to go. Uh, and we, I thought we might turn briefly to a, a clip. Adam, would you mind loading up the clip just to, just to give you a sense uh, of what this, uh, what this looks like? You can close your eyes and imagine that if China had evolved into a constitutional monarchy and we still had the Manchu uh, ruling family in charge, we... This is a news broadcast in Manchu from the, the Shiba Autonomous County. Those of you who speak Chinese will recognize quite a lot of Chinese terminology. ได้เชนิงกะกัมปูอามิดัมเบอร์บิมเนมตระชิตองเวนอสเปียร์กานอสมตังกูสเปียร์อัมบรวิตาออสโซตุมเบอุลานิสเตติตระชิตองเวนอ
I think, I think it may have something to do with the fact that the, the, the Mandarin dialect is a northeastern dialect. So, in fact, the, the phonology of Mandarin and, and Manchu you know, probably are quite close if we were to examine that. So, we, so maybe there's a reason why we sort of think it sounds, sort of sounds like Chinese. Yeah. Just, just, a, just a speculative thought. Um, now, actually, as it turns out, though, uh, anyone who believed that, that Manchu culture and identity was uh, on a continuous trajectory of decline ha has actually been proven wrong uh, in the last decade or so. So recently, these articles in the paper about the, the end of the Manchus um, have uh, often included mention of a, a tentative re-emergence of Manchu uh, among young Manchus who are rediscovering their, their ethnic uh, identity. And this, is, this has become something um, quite popular uh, in China, China recently to, uh, so to speak, come out uh, as a Manchu. Uh, as, as the stigma uh, fades away uh, and, on the other hand, as people see certain advantages possibly uh, as identifying as a, an ethnic minority, you can find people... Um, reconnecting with their Manchu roots um, through, you know, evening courses, uh, things like that. Um, I think it's too early to speak of a, a, a linguistic revival uh, at this point, but it'll be interesting to watch where this, this goes in the, um, the years to come. The, the size of the registered Manchu population is actually growing very fast. That, that's very clear. Um, there's now more than 10 million Manchus which means that they've just recently overtaken the Uyghurs as the third largest ethnic minority uh, in China. Now, now, to think that at the Chinese Revolution, 1949, they were really not on the map at all. They're <laughs> now to be the third largest uh, ethnic minority and very close to becoming the second largest. Uh, we can confidently say that they will become the, the second largest very, very soon. Um, the other place that Manchu is... Uh, experiencing a revival is in academia. Uh, there's, there's actually a long tradition of foreigners learning uh, Manchu. If you're at Jeremy Barmay's talk, he, he, he discussed this. Uh, Manchu was the language in which the Jesuit missionaries conversed with the, uh, the Qing emperors. Um, Manchu was often seen as an entry point into the much more uh, difficult, intricate, classical Chinese tradition. Uh, and, and conversely, in the early Qing, Western uh, scientific medical texts were also translated uh, into, into Manchu. It continued to be seen as important into the, uh, into the fall of the Qing. Uh, now, after roughly a century of, of neglect, it's again become an expectation that students of, of Qing history will learn Manchu uh, alongside classical Chinese. Uh, so that in turn leads to new research on the Manchus, greater interest in the Manchus. So we can speak in general, I think, of a scholarly rediscovery uh, of the Manchus uh, taking place uh, at the moment. Now, I think that's about all I have time for today. If I'd given this talk <coughs> a year ago, I, I would have ended it here, I think, on this positive note uh, about the possibility uh, of a Manchu uh, revival. But I would instead like to uh, end on a slightly different note. Uh, I feel it would be remiss of me to deliver a talk here on Qing culture 
uh, and the Manchu language without saying something uh, about the impending decline uh, of Asian language study uh, at our premier national institution. Um, the, the Qing emperors actually forbid foreigners from, from learning Chinese, uh, and eventually they forbid foreigners from learning Manchu uh, as well, fearing that, that knowledge of these languages would, would grant these foreigners too much insight in, into the actual workings uh, of the, uh, of the emperor, empire. So we can say, I think, that the Qianlong and Jiaqing emperors, uh, not to mention Xi Jinping, would approve of the decision to, to slash the school uh, of culture, history and languages uh, at the, the College of Asia Pacific. Um, there can really be no mista mistaking the significance of this decision. Uh, the value of language study itself uh, is being called into to question. Uh, and with that, the value of original research into the history and culture of two-thirds of, of humanity, uh, of Asia. So this plan is not only an outrage in industrial terms, um, but it's, it's a big leap backwards in terms of the significance that we accord Asia uh, in our vision uh, of the humanities. We can imagine, for example, if a, if a leading university in China that had a global reputation for the study of Shakespeare uh, decided that it would cut its English department down to a few foreign students teaching business English. Uh, on contracts. Um, it would be hard, I think, to avoid the conclusion uh, that this represented, to, to some extent, a, uh, a, an inward turn in intellectual life uh, in, in China. And, uh, so I think it's, uh, it, it's not to be wondered at if, if foreigners uh, draw similar conclusions uh, about what's going on here uh, in, in ANU. So I'd just like to end with that by expressing my solidarity with the, the colleagues who are uh, going through uh, this process and also uh, asking you to, to remember as you enjoy this exhibition and the, the very beautiful artefacts that it contains that this represents an intellectual tradition a millennia old that we are right now in the process of, of cutting ourselves uh, off from. Uh, so if you, if you share my view that there should be a place for Asia uh, in the humanities, then I, I'd like to ask you to, to put those thoughts in writing and, and convey them to the Vice-Chancellor uh, of Australian National University, uh, Dr Brian Schmidt. So I'll end on that note, uh, and thank you all for your attention. Thank you.